Broadcasting from an undisclosed location, you are about to join the leader of the unofficial resistance, the rebel himself, Brian Lilly. This is the Brian Lilly Podcast. Well, all is right with the world, isn't it? Omar Khadr is being granted bail. He can be a free man walking the streets anytime soon. But Stephen Harper is the real villain because he didn't wear a Winnipeg Jets jersey to a Winnipeg Jets game. Hello, and welcome to the Brian Lilly Podcast. These are some of the headlines that are making the news across the country today. Yeah, I wish that that weren't the case, but... This is the world that we live in, where everything Omar Cotter is good with the media, everything Stephen Harper is bad with the media. But don't worry, there's no media party here. I mean, other than the fact that they all came away from the budget with the same talking points. Now, if you haven't been in these lockups, you do get a lot of reporters talking to each other and comparing notes, and there's only a limited number of analysts. In fact, this year, there seem to be fewer than normal, but... So people end up talking to the same analysts. But, I mean, I talked to David McDonald from the the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, Ian Lee from Sprout School of Business. Uh, Ian's right wing. David's definitely left. Uh, The Taxpayers Federation was in there. The Labour Congress was in there. And yet they all came away from the budget with the same talking points, which is that Stephen Harper is fiddling with the books and, and these mean tax cuts only help the rich. Not backed up by facts, by the way, but those were liberal talking points, so they seem to have worked their way into the budget somehow, or into the budget lockup and into the budget coverage. So Stephen Harper's bad, and then he goes to Winnipeg, and he talks about, or sorry, he shows up at a, at a Jets game, where the Jets are already down 3 nothing in the series, and the whole city is out in their whiteout uniforms to uh, show support for the team. And instead of showing up in a white Jets jersey, Stephen Harper shows up in a white Team Canada jersey. And this this is a national issue. This is a national problem. CBC doing up a story based on nasty tweets from people that wouldn't vote for Stephen Harper if their butts were on fire? Give me a break. But it's gone on and it's become part of talk radio. It's become part of the political pundit shows. And now I'm forced to talk about it just to point out how ridiculous it is. Because Stephen Harper, not wearing a Jets jersey, caused the team to lose. And and they're bad. Or he's bad for doing that. Meanwhile, you've got Tabitha Suthi over at the Globe and Mail tweeting out, Good luck, Mr. Cotter, in all your future endeavors. Because the little terrorist, the self-confessed murderer and terrorist from Canada's first family of terror, has been granted bail by a court in Alberta, judge saying that while he is appealing his his time in an uh, in an adult prison, his, the, trying to get out early, he can have bail. Isn't that great? I mean, if you didn't know already that an awful lot of the people in the media in this country are cheerleaders for that little terrorist, you do now. And believe me, he's a little terrorist. If you want, if you want good coverage on this, if you want to know what's happening then go to the rebel.media and check out the coverage that we've got there. Because they won't show you Omar Cotter building an improvised explosive device. Or if they do, they'll say, well, it was only, it was only a little boy when he did it. Fine. Fine. One of his brothers walked away from that life. He didn't. Even after his father died, he stuck around. 
he wanted to be part of that life. He was raised to be part of that life. And if he had left and gone back to his mother, she would have sent him back out there again. I have no doubt that that boy was raised solely to be the literal terrorist that he became, and maybe he didn't have a shot in life. But that does not excuse him from his actions. But the media wants to do that. They want to paint him as the victim, rather than Christopher Spear, whose children are growing up without a father because Omar Cotter killed him on the battlefield. I remember when Cotter's trial was going on down at Gitmo, and we had media people who couldn't figure out how he could be charged with murder on the battlefield at the same time as we had a Canadian soldier charged, convicted of murder on the battlefield. Why? Not following the rules, the laws of war. After the battle's done, when the wounded are being collected, when care is being given, you do not kill. And if you do, that is murder. That is in violation of the rules of war. But of course, of course, we all remember that from Afghanistan, from the Taliban detainee controversy that we had in this country, that you're only supposed to provide the Geneva Convention treatment to, to the Taliban. We're not in... You know, we shouldn't get that. We shouldn't expect it from them. Why should we expect it from them? We're just supposed to give it to them. The unthinking media in this country question them at every single turn. As I said, you want more coverage on Omar Cotter, go to the rebel.media. It is driving me nuts what what I'm seeing so far. And I can only only imagine what's going to be coming out in coming days. Now, beyond the federal budget this week, there was a provincial budget in Canada's largest province, the former economic engine of the country. And the Wynne government decided that they would try and distract voters, distract the public from the fact that they are still in deficit, that they have no plan to get out of deficit, that the budget is growing and growing and growing, and it's all going to one thing, public servant salaries from the generous buy-offs that Kathleen Wynne and before her Dalton McGinty have been giving to their public sector union friends to buy labor peace, that the money's going out the door to that. They, they tried to distract us by talking about six packs of beer in supermarkets. Anthony Fury is the comment editor at the Toronto Sun. He may have several other titles at this point because things are always changing down there. But Anthony Fury is coming up to to talk about what really was going on in the Ontario budget because it's a shell game, a shell game of numbers that don't add up and a shell game of trying to distract from how badly we are in the red. Anthony, your thoughts on Ontario's budget? You know, we, we heard about how awful it was that Ottawa was daring to balance the budget and, and yet Ontario still hasn't done that. Oh, but Brian, they're going to do it in two years with the snap of a finger. It'll it'll be easy peasy is what Finance Minister Suze is telling us. <laughs> you know, it's funny listening to liberals here who have close ties to liberals at Queen's Park uh, denounce the Harper Conservatives, and you and I would agree, I think, that they spend too much money, spent too much money during the recession, um, and, and they have their reasons for it, including the whole coalition thing, and it was a minority government, and the, the opposition demanded it, and so on. But, right. but the liberals here now say, 
Well, they, it took them long enough. The recession's been over for years. Well, your cousins down at Queen's Park started spend, doing deficit spending at the same time, and they're still doing it. And here, here's the macro look at the numbers. The, Stephen Harper came to power at relatively the same time the Liberals took over from the PCs in Ontario when, uh, when McGuinty first came to office. Now, I looked at the budget numbers from the years they took over until today. Now, what has happened is that Dalton McGuinty has increased government, increased the, the raw budget expenditures by about 105% from what Ernie Eves passed on to him. He's more than doubled it. Mm -hmm. Whereas you take what Stephen Harper did with the numbers that Paul Martin gave him, and you include the factors, all that stimulus funding, and he's increased government by about 38%. So the liberals are, are three times the sinners that the conservatives could ever be when it comes to expanding government. So that's why that, that narrative of the liberals saying, oh, well, we can equally criticize the conservatives just doesn't fly. Well, one of the uh, points brought forward by Pierre Polyev in a, well, he kept bringing it up in the house, and so I said, let's do, let's do a chat, let's do an interview on this, uh, is this whole idea of whose money is it? Is it taxpayer money? Is it government money? Because progressives seem to think it's all government money. But he, right. he kept pointing out when I said to him, Pierre, my complaint with the budget is you're still spending too much money. There's still lots of room to cut. He did correctly point out that Stephen Harper and the Conservatives have brought government to its lowest uh, level in terms of size of GDP for the federal government in since the 1960s, since the advent of the welfare state under the Liberals. Yeah, it's hovering around about 14% of GDP, which is, is a relatively good low number. And I know in their long-term projections, and that's where I look to worry about, hey, do these guys actually have a handle on things? It is not predicted to grow. It goes up by like 2.2% one year and goes down by 03 another year, which is fantastic. And the Conservatives are on target to do that pledge Stephen Harper made in 2013 to bring debt down to being uh, 25% of GDP, which, which I think is a, a fantastic thing because in Ontario, whether they balance the budget or not in two years, and it's $8 billion, you can do it. It can certainly be done. Well, they're not they're not eking out a major game plan to reduce the debt, and that is a major concern for me. Yeah, well, and of course, the debt in Ontario is reaching California-like uh, proportions. In fact, oh, I believe you and I have talked about this before. California, which was essentially declared bankrupt a while ago, uh, was never as bad off as Ontario is when you look at the debt, the deficit, and long-term unfunded liabilities. Well, exactly. To return to my, my comparison of... Dalton taking over in 2003 from Ernie Eves, the debt was a hundred and uh, about 130 billion dollars, and now it's 302 billion dollars. So once again, that's something else that they've doubled. Yet again, it only took them 12 years, Brian and Dalton and 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 Kathleen Wynne, Mick Winty, They've managed to double the budget. They've managed to double the debt. Has your salary doubled? Has inflation warranted a doubling? Has the population base doubled? No, no, no. So what is going on here? It's, it's unsustainable growth. To your point, it's the path to, forget California, the path to Greece. All right. I want to ask you about this before we run out of time, and that's uh, a couple of things. One, Kathleen Wynne getting up and saying that she doesn't believe in monopolies, so this foreign-owned beer monopoly in Ontario has to be broken up. Uh, because 
well, she wants to be able to say that she put beer, not in corner stores, but six packs in supermarkets. It, you know, it's, it's crony capitalism still because it's a deal where the supermarkets can only sell a certain amount. It's, it's not like over in Quebec where I'll be going to buy beer later today, uh, where you can just walk in anywhere and the breweries fight for market space and shelf space and, uh, and all of that. This is crony capitalism where the beer store said we don't want this to happen. The, uh, the supermarkets get a certain cut and, of course, the government gets its cut because the price of beer is going up due to an extra tax. It's so, and, and I appreciate, I appreciate that Kathleen Wynne made that comment because usually she isn't even willing to pay lip service to these things. So fine, hats off to that. And Brian, when I when I look at the final ledger of where we're sitting right now, we are just a notch, a notch in the right direction on that file. So fine, I I credit her with that. But to your point about the, we got the fifty cent tax coming out now on the twelve packs, and we've got these just annoying little micromanagement regulations. I tear my hair out. Only government can claim they're getting out of a business by adding like 25 nitpicky regulations. It boggles the mind. Well, and she said she doesn't like... Just get out of the game. She says she doesn't like monopolies, and yet she's continuing to run the liquor store monopoly, which she owns. Exactly. I mean, there's a lot of suck and blow going on here at the same time. I... By, by all means, we got to get in into the grocery stores because it's it's the thin edge of the wedge. This is the way. If we push on these small victories, we're going to get the big victory going soon. But she she can, if she wants to, just accomplish the big victory with a snap of a finger. And I wish she did. Okay, I'll tell you this: the only way that we actually get a victory is if you get the government out of uh, the regulation of the price and the wholesale. Because in Alberta, they went to private sale, but the government runs the wholesale business and sets the price, and so now the price is actually higher than it is here in Ontario. So I, that's not the, the way I want to end up at the end of the day. The thing I love about the Ontario liquor laws, you actually look at the legislation and it mandates price fixing. So it mandates something that if you and I did, <laughs> we would go to jail. There you have it, folks. <laughs> and, and one other weird thing, you can collect air miles at the government liquor store, but if you go into one of these off-license liquor stores in the rural areas where they actually do put them in the supermarket already or in a corner store, they're not allowed to give you air miles because it's against the law to give any promotional consideration when selling liquor unless you're the government. I never expect politicians to let common sense get in the way of their agenda. (laughs) Anthony, good talking as always. Thanks so much. Take care, Brian. More from the Brian Lilly Podcast in moments. Follow Brian on Facebook, facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. Join the rebellion. Find more Brian Lilly at www.therebel.media. The other day on the Brian Lilly Blazecast, posted over at theblaze.com, of course, I was talking with Phelan McAleer about his play Ferguson, based on the shooting of Michael Brown, and it's called Verbatim Theater, where you take the, the actual grand jury testimony and turn it into a play. Well, 
it looked like that was going to go on with a, a bunch of actors hired and everything set for this coming weekend. And then the actors decided they were going to stage a walkout. Phelan McAleer joins me now for an update on this. Phelan, what's the, the state of this? This was happening in Los Angeles. You'd hired theater actors. You'd booked a theater. Are all the actors gone? What's happening? Uh, five actors walked out. Um, I had a meeting with the rest of the cast last night to answer their questions, to listen to their concerns, uh, to to not rewrite the script as they demanded. So I don't know what I don't know what many are walking out today. Um, I I think some will be uh, just from the atmosphere last night and from the questions and points made. So five walked out. And I, I assume some more are going to walk out today. But I can tell your listeners this, the show will go on. There right. will be a performance of the Ferguson script on the stage on Sunday, even if I have to read it myself in my indecipherable Irish accent. <laughs> well, I can I can decipher what you're saying, um, but you don't exactly sound like you're from Ferguson, Missouri. No, I'm not from around these parts. I'm a recovering European. All right. So the email that you sent me the other day announcing this said that some of the actors were upset at your quote-unquote conservative politics. Yeah. Is is that what's driving this? Is that they found out that you were a conservative, or is it that they don't like what was in the grand jury testimony? I think it's, more, it's both, actually. They don't like what was in the grand jury testimony because they believed what the media had told them. That hands up, don't shoot was was what happened. They believed even if that didn't happen, something like that happened. And then when they were confronted with the grand jury testimony, they realized that that's not what happened. And you know, I think many people are happy with their own fairy tales, happy living in their own mythical world, and they didn't want to to be in that world of truth. And they didn't want to be in the world where 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 they're bringing, you know, where they're smashing other people's fairy tales. It's a tough job smashing people's dreams and people's fairy tales and the stories they tell themselves. So I think the actors didn't want to be part of that. They, I think they wanted to just keep that myth going, you know, keep people comfortable rather than afflict the comfortable. They wanted to keep the comfortable comfortable. Hmm. All right, so... I mean, the, well, I, mean but I have to say, that to be fair, there's been an enormous response. Uh, people have come on the crowdfunding site uh, FergusonThePlay.com and just really stepped up to the mark. We were at 60% funded when this story broke. Now we're at 100% funded. People have, have done a tremendous job. And, and But obviously this last-minute mess-up has, has increased our expenses. We're in a bit of a crisis. We're asking people to buy more tickets, to go to FergusonThePlay.com and just help us out that bit more to get us over this, this little mini-crisis and get the truth on the stage. And we're going to film it, and it's going to be on YouTube, and the whole of America's going to see it. I mean, the reason there's expenses is you had to rent a theater. You had to pay the actors. So this was a paid gig for them, and they're still walking out. Yeah, that was one of my shocking things, actually, was that, that, that they would break a contract like that. Now, they're not being paid a lot of money. In fact, they're being paid a pathetic amount of money. No actor does it for the money, really. But but where I come from, a contract's a contract, you know? Uh, I was shocked, actually, that they would be so cavalier. But, you know, ideology trumps everything, I think. And uh, that's 
that's the state we live in. And the, I, I, yeah, it was shocking that they would break a contract so easily, so casually. Not even, I don't think they did it easily or casually, but there was a break contract at all. So, so this has just messed the whole thing up. We've hit the target, but the target has moved now because it has to completely recalibrate, recast, rehire. So, I'm, you know, I'm speaking to your listeners. If any of them are in LA, come, buy a ticket, come, send a message to Hollywood, send a message to liberal actors. You know, we want the truth. The censorship stops here. And uh, let's make it happen. All right. So let's remind people, maybe you didn't hear you on the other day, uh, verbatim theater. Explain mm-hmm. that because you're saying what, what you're doing is bringing the truth of what happened with the Michael Brown shooting to the stage. Explain how verbatim theater works and how, how that relates to bringing the truth out. Well, I think this was the problem for them all, was that this is a verbatim theater. So I didn't, I, there are, in this script, there are no characters added, no dialogue added, no cast, you know, no dramatic interventions, no, no inventions at all. It's all, all, everything you hear is what was heard in the grand jury room. So it's, it's important that people know that. And I think that's what really got them was they realized, oh, this, was in the grand jury room. This is what they heard. This doesn't match what I, what I thought the truth was. And I don't like this, so I'm going to leave. Uh, you know, it's hard to know what, what's going on, really. Well, the one fellow that was quoted by the Los Angeles Times, uh, Philip um, Kaznoff. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he said, he was up front, he said, I'm a very left-wing liberal guy, and I didn't like this. Yeah. Yeah, and then he Googled me and found out that I'm not a liberal left-wing guy, and I think that really put him over the edge. Oh, they, well, they, they must have just assumed that, well, you're doing theater, you must be doing left-wing stuff. Um, a bit like yeah, when ben, like ben Shapiro was researching his book on uh, primetime propaganda. Mm-hmm. He said, well, I walked in, my last name Shapiro, I was wearing a Harvard Law ball cap, they just assumed I was liberal like them. Yeah, that's it, that's it. So... um but also, I mean, my politics are not uh, are not in this play because this is verbatim. I haven't added any characters, haven't any added any dramatic speeches. I haven't added any evidence. It's all the only. It's only the evidence the grand jury heard. So there's no grand soliloquy in the middle where you put forward your views. No. No. All right. Not at all. So the the other day you were telling me that even if people give one dollar. It helps, not just on the money front, but in showing that there's support for this. Do you yeah. want to go over that again? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, lots of people can't come to the screening, and they can't afford even to, to support us, and the people have written to me. And I write them back and say, look, give me $1, because Hollywood, it looks at the money, but it also looks at the number of people who give, who make a statement. That was something we did. We discovered in Gosnell. Hollywood's interested in the fact we, we raised all that money, but... They're really, really, really interested in the fact there are now almost 28,000 people who paid to make that movie happen. They think that's a massive audience because they all bring 10 of their friends. Now, it's the same with this Ferguson play. You know, Broadway, all these places, they're looking at things that will attract an audience. So people need to go on and give $1. Just It's like signing a petition to say, I want this play to travel. Because I want it to travel to New York, I want it to travel to Broadway. Then I want to bring it to Ferguson. Because the people of Ferguson deserve the truth as much, if not more, than anyone else. All right. Well, you're a brave man, uh, Phelan. Did you expect this to court this much controversy when you started this? 
No, no, it's very disappointing, actually, in some respects, that I that the truth is not acceptable for so many people in Los Angeles. Hmm. Well, all the best. Uh, give me an update after it it, uh, it starts on Sunday. I'll look for an email from you, and uh, we'll keep the audience informed. Thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. I'll keep you informed of all twists and turns. Thanks. <laughs> all right, bye. Phelan McAleer from Los Angeles. Stick around. This is the Brian Lilly Podcast. More coming up. We don't listen to him because he's sexy, but it doesn't hurt. This is the Brian Lilly Podcast. You are about to join the leader of the unofficial resistance, the rebel himself, Brian Lilly. When the Supreme Court came out with a ruling striking down mandatory minimum sentences, I said, this is the Supreme Court using gun owners. It's not a ruling I'm happy with because I think that it's going to lead to um, thugs who walk around Jane and Finch with a a pistol with 23 rounds in it shoved in the back of their pants, which is one of the cases involved in this uh, court challenge, they're going to get lighter sentences while nothing is going to change for law-abiding gun owners. I think the Supreme Court got it wrong. They could have done things differently. But it turns out that not everybody thinks that way. I know that the, the Canadian uh, Shooting Sports Association, the uh, National Firearms Association, and our next guest, Faith Goldie, all think differently. Faith joins me now on the line. And Faith, tell me why hey, I'm wrong. Brian. <laughs> Several reasons. Well, I, I can say that uh, Justice Minister Peter McKay agrees with you, which is now leading to yet another tiff between the Supreme Court of Canada and Harper government. But look, as far as I'm concerned, um, the folks that are in your camp, Brian, are turning a blind eye to, frankly, the poor wording that was within Section 95 to begin with, because it didn't say violent criminals. What it did is it left this huge door open for paperwork criminals who, let's say, were a day, a month, or in perhaps the sloppiest of cases, a year late on renewing their licenses. And we know that, Brian, we covered those sorts of stories when we were at Sun News Network. And I'll be honest with you, I just got off the phone with one Ed Berlew, great uh, firearms expert and lawyer here in Canada, uh, just outside of Toronto, and he dealt with guys who have faced these very charges, faced these very convictions for Pete's sakes. So the three dissenting judges, Brian, that say, oh, this is all, you know, some far-fetched hypothetical that some paperwork criminal somewhere in Timbuktu, Ontario, might be faced. No, buddy. Okay, this actually does happen, and thank goodness that this law uh, was struck down, because, I mean, when you think about where Justice Minister Peter McKay is coming down, and I get it, Harper's conservatives are fed up with the Supreme Court of Canada because that those nine you know folks have been the, the policymakers of the year. I get that, but but look at what the conservatives are trying to do for the gun uh, owning community here, the law abiding gun owning uh, owning community. C forty two works exactly towards eliminating those paperwork criminals. So the Supreme Court in this case is actually helping out the conservatives. And and what does Justice Minister no, do? No, 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 they're uh, not. No, they're not. Faith. What they're all right, doing? All right, fire back. Tell me why. What they're doing is they're using gun owners to get their way with with giving criminals lighter sentences. I'll tell you why. Because the Supreme Court has many different steps that they can take when they disagree with the law. They could have looked at this. If, if what they were worried about is the hypotheticals, then they could have instructed Parliament to amend the law to bring it in line with the Constitution and leave it in place for 
the bad guys, like the one I mentioned at the top, and they could have said, fix it that way. But they didn't. They struck down the entire law and said this whole apparatus is unconstitutional. That's not caring for someone who's being uh, unjustly charged, unjustly convicted, unjustly prosecuted. That's just saying, hey, look, we can use these schmoes, these gun owners as bait to to show that oh, we're, we're, we're even better than the Harper government on this and, and we're going to do it. I think that the, the, I, I understand the, uh, the concerns of people like Ed Burlew, uh, like Tony Bernardo, like Sheldon Clare, like Solomon Friedman. I can understand their concerns and some of them snap back at me on after my initial reaction at the Supreme Court ruling. I get the concern, but there was a way that the court and parliament, quite frankly, could have dealt with that concern without getting rid of the mandatory minimum for the kid with the illegal gun shoved down his pants, hanging outside the community center at nine o'clock at night and then running away when he's asked, what are you doing? Right. And look, I, I don't think that that door has been entirely closed. I think what we need is a new law that, that targets those violent offenders, that targets those people that should have never had a gun in the first place. Uh, that door has not been shut. But at the end of the day, Section 95 was bad law. It was poorly written, and it led to people who, who, who were otherwise good guys that basically amounted to being late on a paperwork form, the same as you or I forgetting to uh, renew our driver's license. Um, facing but, th- time but that up, had uh, not happened yet. There were other uh, cases uh, that, uh, Ed, that Ed had dealt me, with. Tells me that he has dealt with these sorts of cases before. So you know what? Uh, as far as I'm concerned, there are, there are real Canadians that have faced these sorts of uh, uh, charges that have faced. I, I mean, uh, Brian, like I, I myself, I worry about the fact I check my firearms license on the regular just to make sure. Wait, hold on. Did, did I think the year was wrong? Because before Section 95 was struck down, I didn't want to face a mandatory minimum. Mandatory minimum. There is no room for judicial review to de- differentiate. Grandpa, who's a month behind his renewal, but, and the no, no, you're banger. wrong. You're wrong on that because the prosecutor had the discretion. If it was a paperwork crime, they could have just gone with summary indictment if they decided to charge. If in section or uh, Bill C forty two is going to take that away, it's going to grant uh, you know grace periods for licenses and so on. But there was no need if it was a nonviolent offense, like just forgetting to fill out your paperwork. A summary conviction, which did not carry a mandatory minimum, was there and available for the prosecutors. I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell you. I'll tell you what the other routes were that were being taken is that folks were being charged with this, and when they were saying, "Oh, well, you know, you're not a gangbanger," they'd make them cop something else. So, like, well, you know what? We won't make you face the mandatory minimum, but you can't have guns for X period of time, or you can't have guns again, and, and that that's not. Uh, that the, the punishment does not fit the crime there. Look, Brian, as far as I'm concerned, I think this should be welcome. I think that, can, uh, that the Canadian Parliament, the Harper Conservatives, should take this as, as a welcome uh, opportunity to form a new law, which they're doing through C-42, while at the same time, outside of the Common Sense Firearms Act, look at a way of, of being tough on criminals, because we do know that the highest level of the courts, right down uh, to, to the very bottom in this country, I mean, this on the day that, you know, Omar Khadr is going to be getting bailed, basically, um, they have issues, let's say, with uh, assigning suitable sentences to violent offenders. I get that, and I understand the purpose of mandatory minimums, but there has to be airtight legislation in order to under- in order to ensure that otherwise good Canadians who might have just forgot to cross a T or dot an I, don't get put behind the bars. So and I you and I agree on that. 
You and I agree okay. on that, and I think okay, but Brian, all, I mean, all the other governors agree on it. You can't tell me that this is good it. law. You cannot tell me that this is good law. You have to admit that even you say there had to be some sort of, of amendment no, made to this I, amendment. I agreed. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I agreed that ninety uh, that 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 law, that mandatory minimum law, had to be fixed. I agreed with that, and I think that it could have been changed. My view just simply is that the Supreme Court's decision was a bad one because rather than taking the route available to them of ordering Parliament to adjust the law to fix it so that the hypothetical they used to strike it down could not happen, they said, here, this could happen, so we're going to let everybody off. And yeah, we're going to say that it's unconstitutional if- for you to put the gangbangers away for a long time. But can you imagine if 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 the federal government only did things according to decree of the Supreme Court? I mean, they've got their own brain cells to rub together. Harper and his fleet of of of, of cabinet ministers can come up with better legislation that helps us serve uh, in the interests of the public safety of Canadians and the, the public safety of of gun owners as well. Not to mention the fact, I mean, when you're talking about. Uh, what's actually going to be struck down from the throne of justice. I mean, there's something called judicial review and discretion. Um, So judges have to be afforded the ability. Judges have shown that they don't actually deserve as much judicial discretion as they have had for years. And if it's all about judicial discretion, which is the argument of those that don't like mandatory minimums at all, why do we have mandatory maximums? Let's get rid of those so that we can throw away the really bad guys for 75 to 100 years. Brian, I, I get that, and look, I am no happier than you are with a lot of decisions that have come down from the top uh, court and lower ones as well as of late. Believe me, but this is democracy. We've got you know three different branches that feed into the way that that our country is run. And the day that we say, you know, uh, don't get me wrong, I love I love our parliament, but the day that we say that one should be rendered essentially um, with their hands tied is, is a dangerous day because I'm sure there are a lot of liberals on the other side that say, you know, as soon as those Harper conservatives got rid of the long gun registry, we they showed us that they can't be legislating. Like, no, we can't do that. We have to work together in some way. And while I can be kicked and mad as hell at, at one branch as opposed to the other, we have to try to work together. And I think just because, you know, there are arguments to be made, perhaps the Supreme Court was a bit sweeping in its decision here, uh, there's a way that we can work around it, which is this. Look, 95 was crap law, according to a lot of Canadians, and there are millions of us in this country. So we're happy to say bye-bye. Do, does that mean we want to have gangbangers running around Jane and Finch with, you know, a loaded Glock 9? No, of course not. And if they are found, then they should be strapped behind bars. And yes, they should face a nine year, or three years, rather, or if they're repeat five years behind bars. Yes, they should. But let's make sure it's just, it's, it's just buddy gangbanger and not, you know, well. ramps. Uh, who, who forgot to, 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 to renew his license. We've just had a 10-minute argument about how much we agree on putting away the bad guys. <laughs> we only disagree on whether the Supreme Court did it the right way or the wrong way. Let's hope that Parliament does figure out a way to, uh, to deal with the bad guys and leave the good guys alone. By the way, Faith, I have to tell everyone this. As, uh, as I call you and your, uh, your contact is up on my screen, uh, okay. your picture, your avatar picture that's up, is you from the big freaking gun giveaway. So oh, come I, be- on. It, it's, I can only see a part of the gun. I, I think you're holding a, a PGW 50, Cal. Uh, it was a 50, Cal. I don't even remember. It was a big freaking gun giveaway. Yeah. Uh, oh, my the God. The smile on that your face. The smile on your face in that picture uh, is huge. 
Well, I'm sure at least one of your listeners has a 50 cal at home, and I'm just saying, wherever you are, I'm willing to travel, okay, because <laughs> the next podcast from one of your listeners uh, uh, ranges, okay? All right, Faye, thanks so much. We'll check All right, God bless. Soon. All right, take care. Make sure you check out the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. Uh, this wraps the podcast. I was going to say more to come, but this wraps the podcast for today. Thanks for listening, and as always, remember, I'm on your side. Join the rebellion. Find more Brian Lilly at www.therebel.media.